0: All right. Hey, good morning, church. So last night, Liberty and I were, uh, we were talking about how we're excited to see our Cedar homies today, so uh, hello to all of our Cedar homies. Um, it is a delight to be with you guys, and um, some people have been keeping track of my percentages of uh, how many uh, of my own children I bring uh, with me. I actually have seven people with me, but uh, one's not my child, um, but, but, but we like them anyway. And my wife is actually in, I think, close to Stanwood. She's, uh, she's at... Uh, Warm Beach. So she's hanging out at a conference this weekend. Uh, But uh, anyway, we are delighted to be with you guys. We are going to continue in the book of Acts. So hopefully you've been following along and you're you're reading through it and you realize, oh my goodness, Acts chapter 7 is a really large chapter. Um, How is he going to do this? Of course he's not going to read the whole thing, Nope, I am going to read the whole thing, and so I do encourage you to uh, buckle up. Uh, If you need a pillow, feel free to. Uh, There's probably some in the back somewhere. Uh, But uh, if you can't find one, then just uh, buckle up, pay attention, slam some more uh, Five Hour Energy and some coffee, and we will we will get through this together. I am going to go fast and furious through it. Some of you uh, may think I talk a little fast already. but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna move even a little bit clo- uh, faster, clip as we move through the scriptures this morning. So hang on. Um, but we've been in this uh, Acts series. I, I've had the opportunity to hang with you guys uh, a few weeks uh, over the past couple months, and it's been really fun and a delight. And uh, so we've been we've been cruising through the book of Acts uh, way too fast. You could you could probably spend a couple years in the book of Acts and enjoy and just like mine the riches of God's truth in the midst of it all. that's really fun. We're kind of doing a little bit of a survey, you know, one chapter a week and just kind of cruising through pretty fast. If you look at the the book of Acts, I think the theme of the book of Acts is going to be found in chapter 1 verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that, you know, if you look at that as kind of the thematic verse, what we're seeing is the launching of the church. And uh, we're seeing, you know, the kingdom being brought um, with Jesus's resurrection, hanging out with the, uh, the apostles so that they could be witnesses to his resurrection as he is starting this revolution at this bringing of this new kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we see that launch right here in the book of Acts. And so we have the Holy Spirit coming in, in power and in amazing ways in the, in the word of God beginning to spread and more and more people coming to the Lord and believers are growing. And, and now we're, we're finding that these apostles and others are being witnesses to the risen Christ. And they're talking about how God has redeemed their own story and there's healings and there's power and there's works of amazing ministry taking place. And, and the stories are being told, and all of a sudden the religious elite, the leaders of the religious community, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they are threatened by this new movement of God that feels wrong to them because it's, it's getting out their own footing and they're, they're, not, they're not seeing the truth for what it is. They're blinded to the, to the truth. And there's this uh, threatening of this new movement, uh, these followers of Jesus and so they are they're threatening uh, prison and beatings. And, and so what we find, though, is that the apostles are just emboldened by the Holy Spirit, not afraid to proclaim the gospel, not afraid to share their own story of what God is doing in them and through them and what Jesus has come to do to launch this kingdom. And they're not threatened by whatever uh, authorities are over them. They are going to proclaim the gospel whether, uh, whether or not it's okay um, by those that are leading in the temple. And so we, we've talked about a restored community, that God is going to restore his community, that the people of God are going to be restored from being broken to be made whole, from being uh, y- you know, blind to be able to see, to be restored in physical and in spiritual uh, sense, that there's a restored mission, a restored identity, a restored reality, a restored courage. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about the restored trust or placing our trust in Christ alone. Last time I was here, we talked about a restored calling, that all of us are made uniquely. We're wired differently. Praise God, that there are, you know, extroverts and introverts, and there are those that are spiritually gifted with these gifts, and they're spiritually gifted with those gifts. And together as the body, we make a whole under the head of Jesus Christ, and we are the church, and we are able to do great things together as a community, that we need one another, but yet we're all called to do the great things that God has for each of us, and so, uh, so today we're moving on to what I, what I would say is like Acts chapter seven. It's, it's, a, it's a sobering chapter for sure. Uh, we get to see the heart of Stephen. We had a brief glimpse of him before, and he was called by God to be a deacon, and yet he was still proclaiming the works of of the king of kings and we find he finds himself in a place where he needs to to put on a defense that he's being charged and he's being accused of something but he has a story you have a story I've got a story we all have a story and uh and so today we're looking at what does it look like for Jesus to restore our stories and so that's that's the that's the theme of the morning Acts chapter 7 is a restored story but let me ask you this what's your favorite story you know me, I like to have some interactions, so feel free to shout it out. What's your favorite story? What? I I can't hear you. Heidi. Heidi. Okay. Heidi. It's a classic. Charlotte's Web. Yes. Some pig. Excellent. Yeah. What else? Lord Lord of the Rings. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good story. Nice trilogy. Anybody else? Narnia, Narnia, the Chronicles. Yes, way back there the inheritor okay so we, we all have like our favorite stories you know where we talked about where the red fern grows that makes everybody cry a few weeks ago um you know so we, there are amazing stories uh liberty likes dr DeSoto. uh if you don't know dr DeSoto, you're going to meet dr DeSoto. but there are all sorts of lovely stories that are out there and uh and we we love them but what 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 do we love about stories like what is it about a story that we love Redemption. Okay, what, what, are the, what are the basic parts of a story? You, I mean, are, is it the kind of the, the building of the character? How many of you guys like to, to, to be a part of a story, whether it's on a big screen or in a book, um, you know, that, that involves a lot of character development? And like, oh, you, you get into the character and you get to know them and, and you understand. It's like Jane Austen, you know, like there's just so much character development and all the webs of relationships. How many Jane Austen fans are out there? Yes. Well-written stories. Just a few of you. How many of you are Jane Austen fans, but you're not willing to admit it in church? Okay. The rest are uh, awesome. Excellent. So uh, we got some honest people here this morning. That's good. How many of you can't stand all the web of relationships like Emma and all of those things? you know, like, okay, there's, all right. So, so we love this character development. We love the, like, how many of you like the building of like a world if you're into like fantasy novels, like the building of the world, like the dystopian and you kind of like, a, like a new, a new way of understanding um, the establishment or fleshing out of the characters? Uh, how many of you guys like it when the character arc is like, you know, they've, they're experiencing lots of growth and there's a redemption and a, and a nature in that? Uh, how about the, the, the kissing parts? You guys remember in the, uh, the Princess Bride where you're like, is this a kissing book? <laughs> I don't want that, you know? And then, and then later on, of course, he's like, don't skip the kissing parts. But yes, the, you know, maybe it's the kissing parts. Uh, is it the resolution where all things like come together? And if you don't get that resolution, you'll be disappointed in the end, Right. Um, so we like the resol- we like the resolution, the walking off into the sunset. You know, like we we like those moments where everything kind of comes together, the bow is tied, and everybody is happy. Uh, but there's something powerful about story. Great stories capture our mind. Great stories capture our heart, and they stay with us. If you're able to tell a great story, uh, you're you're going to be able to share. Like even like in business, people talk about how your business is to be able to tell a story. Like you're going to, if you want to capture more customers, you need to be able to tell your story as a business about what you're trying to do and accomplish. So being able to tell a story is, is really, really important. Um, and, and what I find is that God is the master storyteller, that there is no greater storyteller than, than God, and that there is a story from beginning to end that is the greatest story ever, and that we're all a part of it. And we're going to look at Stephen. He's got his own story. But his story weaves into the master plan of the greatest story right and the greatest story ever told starts in the garden of eden and it ends with this recreated paradise so it starts in paradise it ends in paradise and there's a lot of story in between and you and i are a part of that story just like stephen's a part of that story i get to be a part of that story you get to be a part of that story. And there are hard things, there's conflict, there's resolution, there's pain, there's suffering, there's joy, there's celebrations. There are birthday cakes with like, you know, 12, 14, 77, 83 candles on it, and and like, like get the fire department, I don't know if we should have your birthday cake, right? There are celebrations of new jobs, lost jobs, you know, uh, babies born. Babies buried. There are hard things and lovely things and all of those are part of the story. There is health, there is unhealth. And all of that is a part of God's amazing story and there is a redemptive arc to it. There is, and there is an amazing redemptive arc to it where there is brokenness, there is a plan, a solution, a savior, a salvation, a restoration of life, and then a living in a new way with purpose that makes a difference in the world and community around, and that one day we will be in relationship with our Redeemer again in this paradise-perfect world. And until then, as a church, we are kingdom-bringing people. Now, where we go, when we go, wherever it is that we go, in this building, out of that building, at work, at home, at play, on the soccer pitch, wherever it is, even when playing frisbee golf, we are bringing the kingdom. Competition is good, but in the midst of it, how can you bring the kingdom? As people who are followers of Christ, this is our call in life. This is what we do. So Stephen So, you know, flipping back to Acts chapter 6, we find that Stephen is being falsely accused. He is a man who is being falsely accused. Does he defend himself? Does he threaten others? Does he obfuscate the truth? Does he mislead people? No, he speaks the truth. His defense is to tell the story of God and his people. Stephen was charged with speaking against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law and the customs handed down by Moses. And this is, this is what he is literally on trial for. He is uh, standing before this religious elite who are going to uh, reach a verdict with him. And this is what we find his response to be. And so turn with me. Hopefully you have your own personal copy of the Holy Scriptures. We're about to embark upon 53 verses it's going to be exciting. I've timed it. It's not too bad. But let's pray before we get rolling. Jesus, uh, this is your word. It is important. There is a reason to read it out loud. Lord, your word does not return void. We recognize that this is the inspired, holy, inerrant word of God, and we love it, and we want to hear from it, and we want to hear from you today. And Lord, I believe wholeheartedly that you have something for each of us. And, and Holy Spirit, that's, that's something that you can do only. Only you can move in a way that would touch all of us. Only you can move in a way that would compel each of us to look to you today. And God, for anybody who's here this morning that does not understand how their story intersects with your story, I pray that they would feel called to uh, submit to your authority as King of Kings and Lord of Lords today. That they would recognize that they are broken and that you have healing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 7, here we go. And the high priest said, "'Are these things so?' And Stephen said, "'Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, "'Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you.' And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living.' Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for him for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, when God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt— until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. I'm pretty sure that's the only baby that was uh, called beautiful in God's sight in the Bible, so Moses was a cutie. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt." And I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A little bit of foreshadowing. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, and for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Remember that verse. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witnesses in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen brings it home. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That wasn't so bad. Stephen was in a tough spot, clearly. Stephen was in a really difficult spot. So he has been preaching the word of God. He's been proclaiming the fact that Jesus is indeed Messiah, that he was indeed resurrected, that he does indeed live, that he is indeed reigning, that he is at the right hand of the Father, that he, that he was the Son of God. And this did not go over well with the religious elite. And so, uh, you know, as he is declaring these things, he is putting himself in a vulnerable position. And these leaders are ready to, uh, you know, uh, who are offended by this movement that is like taking away their authority and their power and their position and their prestige, all of those things, uh, they are losing all of that. And so they are being threatened. And so they're trying to stop this. And so they, they, uh, so Stephen finds himself in a tough spot and, it, and in the midst of it, he doesn't, uh, he does not, he does not try to really even defend himself. He doesn't say, uh, you know, he doesn't try to backtrack or try to get out of it or try to you know, to dance around the truth and try to obfuscate things and try to cloud the issues and, and he doesn't get lawyers involved. Like there, this is not what he does. He tells the truth, but he doesn't defend himself. He defends God. He tells the story and he begins all the way back with Abraham. And he tells the story about the people of Israel and how God was using the people of Israel with Abraham and his sons. And, and you, and you get all of, all of that. And he, and he begins to trace the story of how God was always invested in the people of God and that Jesus was indeed Messiah and is Messiah. And, and this is the one who has been rejected and killed and, and not followed. And we see that Stephen brings this specifically to them. He's under duress, but he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, I guess the question is, how does the story turn out? Of course, God is going to rescue Stephen, right? No, unfortunately, Stephen, as we'll find out in in a few verses, that he is martyred. And that this actually, Acts chapter 7, begins a transition from moving to just a Jerusalem-centric movement with with the the Hebrew people, the Israelites themselves, to uh, more of a global movement amongst the Gentiles. And what we're going to find is that that calling to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the other parts of the world, like this begins to transition because of what God is doing in and through Stephen. We see uh, what, what is going to happen immediately in, in Acts chapter 8 is that the apostles are dispersed and that the gospel then is dispersed. And what was started in Jerusalem only begins to spread And what was supposed to stamp this out with persecution and to keep it in a bottle and make sure it doesn't happen anymore, the Holy Spirit has a different plan for it. And it really begins and launches with this amazing story of Stephen who, unfortunately, he is martyred. And it's the story of Stephen and it's his power and the story of God and how God is using Stephen in the midst of it that begins launching something that is unstoppable, unquenchable. And like we talked about last week, God will not be thwarted. Like his plans are not going to be stopped. And sometimes it means that he's going to break you out of prison. And sometimes it means that he's going to heal that thing that you want to be healed. And sometimes it means that you're going to be martyred. It's still God's story. It is still a restored story. It is still part of God's purposes and his plans. And and you know, it, it doesn't change it doesn't change the fact that it is part of God's story. And as we see previously in Acts, God's got a sense of humor and breaks out the apostles in from prison in really funny ways. And Stephen's story is not so funny. Right? He's martyred and that's serious and sobering. But what does it take in the character as we look at the character of Stephen as we look at the man that he is and how he fits in the midst of God's story what can we pull from that man I want to be like Stephen that in the midst of of my literal life on the line what am I going to be doing man I really hope that I'm telling the story of God I hope that I am proclaiming the goodness of God that I'm telling his story from uh, creation to recreation and that I'm in the midst of it, and however it pans out, it pans out because, praise God, I am on board with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he has a plan, and, and I, I hope I make it out of this. What do we see in, uh, what do we see in this God's story with Israel? So, I, I, you know, as we look at the story of God, I mean, I, you know, you got to give Stephen in the Holy Spirit props, right? So what took me, I don't know, maybe three or four minutes to read that probably should have taken like five to seven minutes. Um, You know, like he like kind of encapsulates the entire Old Testament in about five minutes. Like that's pretty impressive. Like he's wrapping up God's story in about five minutes. So well done. What do we see in the midst of that? So one of the things that I think we observe is there is God's sovereignty and grace that is abundant through all of it that his sovereignty and grace is abundant through his whole story. I mean, one of the first things that we see is that Moses was born right when Pharaoh was killing all the Hebrew babies. Does that sound like a smart plan? Like, if you're developing a plan, like, Moses is born in the midst of a time where all the Hebrew babies were getting slaughtered. Like, this is, like, if you're going to anchor your hopes on this guy, Moses, like, why would you bring Moses about cute as he is why would you bring him about when all the babies were getting slaughtered like that doesn't sound like a smart business plan and yet God's plan he is sovereign over all things and his grace is abundant in all in all circumstances and so it's like it's like God is trying to give the picture that you know what whatever else is going around in the world I am in charge and I can orchestrate these things and then we have these amazing uh, stories of Moses in a little basket that we, that we tell the kids on the flannel graph, and, and we see the little river there and the reeds and the little basket sitting there, and, and, the, and you know, the princess comes, and, and she rescues Moses, and it's this amazing story of God's miraculous, like, intervention. But this is what he has done from creation to recreation. This is God. He is the one who intervenes with abundant grace over and over and over again. And so we see that. We see his sovereignty at work over and over and over again. From Abraham to Moses to all of the patriarchy, all of the stories, right? What else do we see? We see that Israel's tendency is to turn to their own works, right? We see that, number one, that God is sovereign and his grace abounds. But number two, we see that regularly Israel and the people of God have a tendency to turn to their own works, they have a tendency to turn to their own self for salvation. Like one way that we look at that, we could call it functional saviors, whether it's carving an image made out of gold or if it's finding a book to escape into. I think we can connect with Israel that we have a tendency to bury ourselves in work or bury ourselves in Netflix or bury ourselves in the news or bury ourselves into politics or bury ourselves into some, uh, some novel. We have a tendency to find some sort of functional savior. Maybe that functional savior is alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's family. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a, uh, you know, who knows what your functional savior is. But we have a tendency to look to our own self-worth, our own works by our own hands, apart from God. We have a tendency to do that. And we see that in Israel, and I think we can understand that we see that with the patriarchs. We see that with the judges. We see that with the kings. As you read through the book of Judges, as you read through uh, Chronicles and Kings, you're gonna find this amazing historical narrative where we see time and time again, the leaders that are in charge who are supposed to be following God. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times what they do is like, oh, you know, they're gonna follow God and yet they're not gonna tear down the Asherah poles. They're gonna follow God, but they're not gonna tear down the high places. And what does that allow to do? It allows their generation of, uh, of Hebrews to, to begin worshiping false idols, to begin worshiping false gods, and allows them to go astray. And then eventually you get judges that will do what is right in their own eyes instead of what is right in God's eyes. And we see this historically through, right, judges and chronicles and kings, and we see the people of God do what is right in their own eyes. Even in the midst of God's sovereignty and his abundant grace, our hearts have a tendency To look to our own self for functional salvation. Third, we see God's consistent and just love. Whether it's guiding and directing Abraham, whether it is guiding and directing Moses, whether it's guiding and directing all of the different patriarchs with Jacob, as difficult as he was, I'm sure. God's love is consistent and just. And we see that throughout all of scripture. And we see that highlighted as Stephen is telling God's story. Also, what Stephen brings to, to mind of, of the religious leaders, if they were willing to listen, is that God is at work beyond what's happening in the temple, right? The religious leaders of the time felt very secure in the fact that God's presence was in the temple, that God's, like, what God wanted to do was going to happen through them as the religious leaders, and what Stephen was trying to say in a not-so-subtle manner is that God has been w- in, at work calling Abraham when he wasn't even in the chosen land. And that God was calling Abraham, that God was calling Moses, and God was calling others when they were outside in Mesopotamia and in other places not centralized into Jerusalem. And that God is able to work in and amongst, God, like in and amongst people regardless of geogra- geographic location regardless of in the temple or out of the temple. And what we find is that God's leading is, is, uh, is all over and consistent. Flip over to Psalm 63 for, uh just a snippet real quick. We're going to just take a quick look at David. We're going to ba- bounce into David's life. So David was mentioned in, in Stephen's speech as he's talking about you know, how God was moving throughout David was God's chosen king. He was anointed king as a shepherd boy. And then, uh, you know, he, he does not get to be king right away. And so we're going to find David in chapter uh, 63 of Psalm. And it's, it's a Psalm where he was, um, he was not yet, like, ensconced in the kingdom. He was not sitting at a table, um, a royal table with a royal feast. He was not, no, he was sitting in a cave likely, hiding from Saul, who is trying to kill him. And so here we find David, who's God's anointed king, and he is having to hide from this other king, Saul, who's tracking him down, hunting him down, so that he can retain his power. And so David, who's supposed to be king, is hiding, and he's not getting to enjoy all of the things that would be coming with being a king. And we, here's, here's where we find David in his heart. Psalm 63 says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. This is coming from a man who is in hiding. Don't forget. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. But you get this picture of of a man who knows what God has done in the past and is aware of what God can do and is aware of what God is doing in his life now and recognizes that even though he's not sitting at this table to feast on on a royal spread, you would imagine that the king of Israel would have a pretty nice spread of food sitting there, and that as uh, a man who's hiding in a cave, he probably is living off the land, it's probably not as uh, royal of a feast, and yet he's able to say like the, the goodness of God is like and uh, what does he say? He says, the goodness of God, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. And so even though he's not having this meal that is actually full of fat and rich food, he recognizes that the goodness of God and what God is doing in him and through him and in the midst of him all around and part of the plan of what God is doing, like he recognizes that that's as if, like my soul is satisfied as if I'm having this royal feast. And it's a beautiful picture of a, of a man who is in a difficult spot like Stephen, and yet where is he finding his strength? He's finding his strength in what God has done and that what God always does and trusting that he will continue to do that. And I love that about uh, all of us, that we can find our place in in a place in life where maybe there is something that happens and we can trust that, no, God has been good in the past. He will be good now and he will always be good. Good things are coming and his plan is good. I was in a spot last week where I kind of found myself in an unexpected and, and seemingly unpleasant circumstance. Um, I, I lost my job unexpectedly and I was laid off. And so after, after a couple of days of shock and anxiety <laughs> and maybe a little bit misplaced fear, um, I went to the Lord and, and poured out to my, my heart to him. And he, he, uh, he took me to Psalm 66. In the end of Psalm 66... There's this little verse there. In verse 19, it says, But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And it was so comforting knowing, like, okay, in the midst of this, like, uh, you know, I had my moment of shock. I had my moment of, like, what do I, what, what, do, you, what do you got for me, God? Um, and I was talking with my wife I'm like I know I know I'm supposed to trust in the Lord I know that he has a plan for me I know that these circumstances are nothing for God I know all of that but my heart is afraid my heart is uncertain my heart is full of anxiousness and really unwarranted because God is good right and we know that. And I'm like, I preach this stuff. Like, I got to start living it out. Like, you know, and so that, that like dropping 18 inches from like your head knowledge to your heart knowledge where you're like living it out in full faith, like actually living it out. Like what, a, what an opportunity for me to, um, to just sit and trust. And it was so gracious and kind of the Lord to really take me to that verse because I felt like, okay, not only is he hearing my cry, but I just love the wording that he attended to my prayer. I just felt like the Lord was attending to my prayer. And there's an intimacy there. There is an intentionality there. There is, a, uh, th- there is a stepping in and being involved there that just felt so comforting. Like, I'm going to attend to your prayer. That's beautiful. You know what David knew and what Stephen knew is that they were a part of something greater than their own story. And I think there's really some serious truth there. That David, when he was in the midst of this cave and things were not going the way that he anticipated, I mean, as a shepherd boy being anointed king, you've probably got some good ideas of what's going to happen. And things didn't go exactly maybe the way that David intended or in, anticipated them going. Here's Stephen doing what he knows is right for the Lord. He's proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And next thing you know, he's finding himself before the Sanhedrin with his life on the line. Maybe not exactly the way he anticipated this going. Like, everybody else got busted out of prison. (laughs) What's going on with me right now? Right? And in the midst of that, instead of a what was me, they are saying, you know what? I'm going to proclaim the story of God. Because they understood that what is greater is God's story. And they are in the midst of God's story. And that their story is important. That their story is woven into the master's story. But the greater story is the story of redemption that starts with creation and ends with recreation. Right? That is the greater story. And if we understand that, and we have humility to understand that, that it's not about me, that my story matters and is valuable, but it fits into the midst of God's story, and that story is greater. And there is some strength and comfort knowing that. And I think David knew that, and I think Stephen knows that. And I think when we are in the midst of uncircum- like, unexpected circumstances, like it's really helpful to understand that you are, you are in the midst of God's overarching restorative story. All right, let's wrap up Acts 7. All right, we are almost there. I lost my Bible. There we go. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. All right, so this is the religious elite. This is a, they hear Stephen and this is their response. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who we know would become the Apostle Paul through a dramatic transformation. And God is good. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay, Stephen's an amazing man. I joked a few weeks ago that he gets all the props. He deserves the props. This guy is amazing. All right, the heart of him to be able to recognize that in the midst of this, Lord, would you please forgive? It sounds a little bit reminiscent of his savior, doesn't it? Beautiful, beautiful. When we give our lives to Christ, we are gonna reflect his character. As we put our trust in him, we're gonna grow more and more in Christ and reflect more and more of his character. And here we see Stephen almost mirroring that. It's beautiful. So a few last observations. Number one, God will restore your story. I don't know what your story is. I don't know, you know, how things have gone for you in life. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I believe and know wholeheartedly that God will restore your story because you are a part of his story. You are a part of God's story. God is the master storyteller, and you are in the midst of it. Your story in the midst of God's story will be a blessing to others. All right, so those, those are the three observations I want to leave you with this morning. Number one, God will restore your story. What was painful? He can bring healing and restoration to that. And to know that you are in the midst of God's greater story, that like a, like a beautiful tapestry woven together, that your story and God's story weaves together to create this amazing story or a testimony to who God is and how they're using you and what's going to happen in the future. And these restored stories bring God glory and help proclaim the kingdom. You know, as followers of Christ, we are to be bringers of the kingdom. And one way to do this is to tell our stories. And so your story might have some painful moments in it. Like if you're like me, you probably have some brokenness and some mistakes that you've made along the line and some hard things that happen and some suffering along the ways. And in the midst of it, God... restore those moments and he can show you how he was there in the midst of painful places and he can bring healing to wounds that you have and as you're willing to and able to and choosing to share that part of your story with other people those wounds from your past can bring healing to others and God can use your hardship portions of your story to be a blessing to other people Like God wants to restore your story. You might have difficult things in the past and you may never want to talk about them. But I would just say, you know what? Maybe God wants to use your story to bless somebody else because there's other people that have hard stories too. And if they were to hear your story, maybe that's what allows them to see like, oh, God can redeem that. I'm not broken forever. I can be made whole. I can have hope. There's something to be said about, like, something greater than myself. Like, I can have purpose too. I'm, no, I'm not trash or I'm not useless, but I have worth because I'm a child of God. Thank you for sharing your story with me. So I just want to encourage you. I think what we find in Stephen is we find a man that knew and believed and trusted that Jesus was his Lord and Savior that he believed that what Jesus said was true, that he was a witness, that he was a witness to, witness to the risen Christ, that he was a witness to the like, new life that he had in him, so much that he believed that what God was doing, that he was like, willing to do whatever it took, whatever it cost, and for him, it ended up costing his life. And so I'm challenged by the character of Stephen. I'm challenged by what it looks like to have the kind of faith that really makes that kind of impact on your life. I want that. I want that for my family. I want that for myself. I want that for all of you. I want that for my cedar homies. I want you guys to recognize that you're, you're planting your faith so much in Christ that that is your most important thing, the only thing that matters, and that your story is in the midst of this greater story that God has, and that we are still in the midst of the Acts story, the launching of the church, that cedar home is a part of what God wants to do here in Stanwood. He is still like, expanding his church. He is still calling people to himself. That there are people in this community that don't know Christ. And your story can h- impact them. Your story and how it fits in the midst of God's story can impact them. And what do you do? Like, Chris, I don't know how to, t- I don't know how to proclaim the gospel. Well, just look at what Stephen did. He told God's story. And, he, and, he, and, and you basically just then enter in t- your story into the midst of that. Because here's the thing. Stephen brought it home really strong. He looked at them and he called them stiff-necked because they weren't willing, they were too prideful. They weren't willing to see the truth. And so when we share the gospel, it's important not only to say that God is all loving and good, but it's also important to say, you know what? But there is a problem. There's sin in the world. Like we need to share the whole story of the gospel because why do we need salvation if we're not realizing that there is a sin issue? Right? What are we being saved from? And usually when you tell the story of of what God is doing and you you talk about sin as being an issue, usually people have a pretty good understanding of that because there's a lot of problems in the world. And it makes sense that there would be a sin problem. And we, I think as a humanity, we can understand that. And so um, I have a challenge for you this week, if you're willing to accept it. This week's challenge is to just to tell your restored story to at least one person this week. And would you take that challenge? Would you tell your restored story to at least one person this week? Let me pray. And Jesus, I pray that as we as a community we choose that we're going to tell our story to somebody this week. Lord, we pray that people would come to Christ. That people would connect with a story that involves hardship and pain and suffering and how you brought healing and comfort and grace into the midst of all of that. I pray that as we tell our stories that people would come to Christ, that people would be healed, that people would find comfort in hearing the story of someone else. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring the right person to hear that story. But would you open our eyes and give us boldness and courage would you fill us with the Spirit as we go to share our story with others? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, would you guys stand up and receive the benediction this morning? This is out of Psalm chapter 90, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen.